Hey everyone, this is Marcos, and welcome to the Elector Podcast, Stories and Cigars from the Exiled South. I'm sitting here in our undisclosed location recording uh, an introduction to our latest episode. Uh, it's been a long day, so I figured I'd light up a cigar, and I chose to smoke because I had it and it was there, an Andalusian Bull by La Flor Dominicana. This is one of my favorite cigars, Cigar of the Year a few years ago. Recently purchased at Stogie Cigars in Kendall in the 305. Uh, one of the few places I can still get one is this place, Stogie's. Check it out if you're in the area. You'll want to drop in and ask them for an Andalusian Bull if you can handle it. It's a pretty intense cigar. So for this episode, uh, we have another story from the exiled south. I recently sat down with filmmaker Adriana Bosch to talk about her new documentary premiering at the Miami Film Festival in March. The film is called Letters to Eloisa, and it is a story of Cuban writer Jose Lezama now, Lima was not only a Cuban writer of world renown, he was also a hell of a cigar smoker. I think every photograph I've seen of him, he's got a stogie. Um, loved his cigars. Uh, he lived in Cuba, so these were all Cuban cigars. Um, he also died in Cuba, which is uh, the, uh, the, the breadth of the story being told in this film named Letters to Eloisa by Adriana Bosch. Um, Lima's life uh, was a life of of struggle um, towards the end, and what he went through in his last 10 years living under the watchful eye of the Cuban Revolution is detailed in the film. Uh, we don't usually date these episodes because we know we want you to we know most people catch up with these later on, and uh, we don't want to make you feel like you missed something or make it feel weird. But in the last few days, we've all been reading statements made about the Cuban Revolution not being all that bad, etc., etc. I will save you the uh, boring comments. But we urge you to listen to this interview with Adriana as she unpacks the life of this writer that the world almost never knew. A world-famous writer that almost died in obscurity. A man who the Cuban government successfully ostracized, isolated, and deliberately set up a system to render his books inaccessible to the Cuban people. Man, so heavy story. We hope you'll like it. Uh, thanks for listening. And make sure you like us on Facebook, Twitter, uh, follow us on Instagram, and if you can, we'd love for you to rate us on iTunes and Stitcher, and uh, I'll stop talking, and we leave you with another story from the exiled South. As the torciadores quietly rolled their cigars and the despalilladoras stripped the stems from the tobacco leaves. They were entertained, informed, and inspired by literature and the daily news. So began the tradition of El Lector, the reader. This is the El Lector Podcast. Stories and cigars from the exiled South.
we're talking. We're here today, Adriana, because um, uh, first of all, thank you for My joining pleasure. me on, on in our undisclosed location, as we like to say on the podcast, okay. somewhere in South Florida, um, okay. and um, to talk a little bit about this uh, documentary film that you've made. Oh, but yeah. the film is finished. Yes, and it is, as you know, uh, premiering at the Miami Film Festival, mm. um, and I I couldn't be happier about yes, that. Yes. I, I think that film belongs in here and it should premiere in here yeah and you know so i i feel like that's uh uh, it, uh, something I wanted, I really wanted it, and 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 mm-hmm. and, and it's happening. So Excellent. that's a good thing. Now, now you've been a filmmaker. You've you, this isn't your first go in in the film industry. No. <laughs> <coughs> Excuse me. Um. So I I the first time I heard about you right. was I was just on Netflix or something, and I oh, saw yeah. El Com- American, American Comandante. Comandante and I said, this is the coolest story ever, and there was your name on it, because yeah. I always look to see, wait, who, who wrote this? You yeah, Because yeah, yeah, I want to get, whenever I watch anything about Cuba, um, you know, as a as a good Cuban exile, I'm always like, wait, who's behind this? Is this, um, is this a little socialista, or is this a, <laughs> is this a little yeah, uh, well, Reagan-ish? Uh, what, what's the background here? Right. So, But it was a wonderful film. Thank you. So that was my first introduction to you. Yeah. Well, I mean, that was really the film I did before the current film. I've been making films since um, 1982. Yes. And, um, you know, I started in film just as, as uh, you know, por casualidad. Yeah. And I basically got a job as a researcher on a series on Central America as so I was finishing my doctoral dissertation. And I was asked, I remember, to kind of babysit a little five-minute clip that was being done on the death of Chamorro in Nicaragua. I remember it distinctly because it was so important. And... Um, I sat there, and the producer. I was just, you know, coming in from, from, from graduate school. I was getting my PhD, and he said, "Why don't you try to write something about this to go with the with the clip?" So I sat there, and I, you know, started writing something to go with the clip. Mm. And five hours later, of course, I didn't know what I was doing. I was still writing, yeah. <laughs> you know, five minutes to go with the clip. And after that, I I just never never went back. There never was a moment where I thought I wanted to leave that kind of writing and that kind of approach to storytelling and go back to you know writing books and writing articles, which is what my training was. Mm-hmm. I, you know, I eventually six weeks after that I got my PhD, but uh, mm. you know, I never I never went back to academia. I just oh. fell in love with the storytelling the power of storytelling mm. through personal witnessing and anecdotes and pictures and you know how that really reveals so much about not only history but about the people who are making the history yeah and you know that was that yeah. that was that and then i you know just started had to learn everything about television right i i, I knew nothing <laughs> about television so it was yeah. a baptism by fire yeah in 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 all of that and it took a few years it took more than a decade for me to be given the opportunity to make my first film which is actually on eisenhower Mm. and uh and that was my my first venture that's one called on on my own ike and i did the uh it was i I did the part about the general and it was pretty much about biography world war ii kind of thing 
And uh, then after that, it was one after the other and after the other. And I, I worked at um, American Experience mm-hmm. at WGBH. It's a PBS yeah. history series, which really was the pioneer history series. Before Biography, before the History Channel, before any of that, mm-hmm. uh, there was American Experience. And we, our job was to tell stories about America, yeah. not to tell history. But all stories happen within a context of history. So at least the stories we were telling, all stories, really, and, um, you know, I, I went on and I, God, I, I can rattle on all the stuff I've done, but I would tell you the highlights were really when I started really having command of, of the genre. I did a piece on, on Jimmy Carter that I mm-hmm. uh, liked a lot, and then there was uh, uh, something I did on Fidel Castro. Mm-hmm. And then I went and I did something on Latin music as a series producer, but also as a producer. Then I went and I did a six-hour series on Latinos in the United States, which included, um, oddly enough, um, a piece on Martí and oh, wow. the Cuban War of Independence. Mm-hmm. It was a short piece, yeah. and it was done from the point of view of Martí as an American, mm-hmm. not so much as a Cuban, but the experience of Martí in the United States and how that transformed him mm. and um and and that that was a lot of fun to to do it was a short piece but it yeah. really you know brought me close to to um to to the war of independence the american intervention and uh, the beginning of of the republican era in cuba yes i um also did a film on fidel castro a two-hour film which i think to date remains the definitive mm. biography of fidel castro it's not perfect you know, mm-hmm. there are a couple of things that if I had to do it again, I would do differently. Mm-hmm. But for what it was and when it came out, I think it made a contribution to uh, the story of the Cuban Revolution and the Cuban people. Mm-hmm. And it revealed and said to an American audience, to a real large mass American audience, you know, who watches a series like American Experience, some truths they had never heard. Right. And then after that, um, you know, the other Cuban thing that I did was American Commandante, which yeah. was kind of a riot. I mean, I love yeah, that story. Those, those yeah, it's a great yeah. story. If anybody know? hasn't seen American Commandante, you need to watch that. Light a cigar and watch it outside. It's amazing. Yeah, it's such a great. So when you're you're writing these, uh, you you did Ike, uh, you did Jimmy Carter, the Rockefellers, the Rockefeller Ulysses S. Grant. Ulysses. Okay, so you did one Grant. That's amazing. Yeah. So you 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 wrote. Quite a bit, um, and then you get to um, what, what? What drove you? Did you? Did, did, are you? Are are you like a lover of history? Oh, uh, absolutely! I yeah. my approach, even even in my academic career, mm-hmm. when I you know I got a degree in international affairs, I could never distinguish and an undergraduate degree in in political science. I wasn't smart enough to distinguish between that and history. Right. So basically, I've been studying history my whole life. Yeah. And that was always my passion, even as a, in the sixth grade, in the fifth grade. History was my passion. Mm-hmm. And when I started making my way through the different sort of branches, academic branches of history, I ended up 
always telling stories. Yeah. I, you know, I, I never approached anything from kind of a quantifying point of view. I, you know, study statistics, but, you know, barely passed with a B minus. <laughs> and, uh, and, and it helped a lot, but essentially, it, um, it, it's always been history and it's always been storytelling for me. So when you, do, when you do stories like um, the Fidel and um, the American Comandante and um, the story of Latinos in, right. in America, mm-hmm. d- does, how, how, does that get more personal for you? Do you enjoy oh, it a little more? Well, you know, I didn't know this. Hmm. I have to say that I, when, I was, um, when I started doing television, it, well, my first show was on Central America, so it mm. was there was something personal there. Yeah. Then I I started doing the other stuff and um, and the craft and the challenge and the learning. The learning of American history to me was fascinating. I mean, learning about the Civil War, learning about World War Two, learning about you know the sixties, the seventies, everything was just mm-hmm. fascinating. And I, uh, b- but I had a certain coolness to it and it was very it wasn't difficult for me to keep that kind of distance that is expected from a PBS producer Um, you know where you weigh one side weigh the other you always have a point of view because we all bring a point of view to whatever it is we do but we always try to give as balanced an approach as we can when it came to telling the story of Fidel, that became much harder. Because then I had a personal investment in that story, I Mm -hmm. had a personal knowledge of what there is, and your tolerance, I think, for what you know are distortions of history. It gets slower. Yeah. And it isn't that you're going to go in there and hablar del sanguinario. You know, I've never done that. I don't do that. Mm-hmm. I don't do that. But you knew that you needed to talk about certain things and you knew that, you know, there were some perceived or constructed truths that your audience had about that subject mm-hmm. that your job was to 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 um, to dethrone them your job was to actually you know fight yes. fight that fight yes yeah. and that was true with Fidel that was mm-hmm. true with American Comandante mm-hmm. and that is true with uh, Letters to Eloisa as yes. well yes the perceptions have to be confronted the Cuban government has done a very very good job at um at um, telling a narrative mm-hmm. of Cuba that is a narrative of a victim. And I think it's a very powerful narrative uh, because it, 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 it kind of always fit with the story of anti-imperialism with the story of anti-colonialism oddly enough mm-hmm. the Cuban story yeah, yeah. in the American mind and in the European mind was very conflated because of when it happened with the anti-colonial struggles of the third world right. so Cubans were no less fighting a colonial power than Congo mm-hmm. was fighting a colonial power right. just as they were fighting Belgium Cuba was fighting America 
America. Exactly. And that all got conflated. And so that was a very powerful thing that the Cubans could could really rely on to tell to tell their story and their narrative. Yeah. And so um it, 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 it the perception remains. The perception remains, and you see it even today, in a lot of um, of what people see in Cuba. Yeah. And because we all see the same things when we go to Cuba, it's just that we bring a completely different uh, perspective. Yes. To to what we see, I think that people see in Cuba. Sometimes they go and they see the the cost of this resistance to being owned by an imperial power is that. Yeah. You know, that kind of like, you know, the Sama used to call it la pobreza irradiante. You know, it's it's that 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 proud poverty. We yeah. look what we have gone through and what we do, but we still proudly stand up yeah, yeah. to imperialism. Right. And that's still there. Yeah, yeah, for sure. That's still there and that's what a lot of people see when they go to Cuba, which yeah. by any by any standards. It's a massive failure. Well, they see that when they go to to the to, what to the tourist sections, and then and then going into the the, the pueblos, they they still see it. They they well, still see it with. I mean, they, they see what they want to see. They see yeah. what they want to see yeah. because it's 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 very ingrained. It is a very it's very ingrained. It's to look at Cuba. As a, you know, people still speak of the revolution's legitimacy for having overthrown Batista in 1959. Mm -hmm. Well, hello. That was a long time ago. Yeah. I mean, you've got to have other claims at legitimacy. Yeah. You can't legitimize yourself because you were the triumphant se segment. Mm-hmm. Of this opposition to a dictator, yeah. you know, I mean, I, I not to say that Fidel wasn't pivotal. He right. was pivotal mm -hmm. in Batista's overthrow, and he was the first person that really took arms, took up arms in against Batista mm. in '53 in Moncada. Mm -hmm. But to claim your to still hear people say, "Oh, but it's better than Batista," you're going like, "What's wrong with these people?" Yeah, <laughs> you yeah. Know? I mean, yeah. it's like '59 was. A long time ago. Yeah. And you never know. You know, you, 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 the, the, what road might Cuba have taken? It's anybody's guess. Yeah, it was in it 1959. Was, yeah, it was my experience when I went. Uh, the I've, I've been uh, quite a few times, and it's been my experience that the average Cuban doesn't really care about any of that. They don't. It's not even part of their language. No, no. Um, it's it's just a it's a system held up by others. Right. But it is part of the language of the people, certainly, that um, are interested in Cuba in the United States. Exactly. There yeah. is a coincidence, I think, of interest in Cuba and leftist yeah. inclinations. Yes. So the minute you step into a Cuban story, you're stepping into sort of the natural... You know, a natural koto, you know, a natural yeah. place where the left exists. It's all going to be political. It's yeah, all going to be left-wing left political. Yeah, yeah, you know, yeah, I mean, yeah. you're not talking about art. I mean, you're not talking about, you know, I don't know, 17th century art. You're mm -hmm. talking, you know, which has a different set of people that pay attention to it. You're not talking about 
Switzerland. You're not talking about I mean the, the subject itself. Yeah. The main you know, you, you are speaking to people of the left because that's the people who are interested in the subject. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. I was looking uh, just today. For the most part, some uh, an uh, a, a f- uh, f- an artist photographer did a a, a, a book yes. or so, or not a book but like a, a series on sparse kitchens. Oh, I, I was Cuba. looking at that today too. Right, that, that was. That's why I'm talking the yeah, way I'm yeah. talking now. It's, it's silly. It's just it's not. I mean, I guess you know. Basically, it was uh, for for those of you listening. It, it was basically a series of photographs she took. She wanted to go to Cuba to take pictures of people's kitchens right which by the way the 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 you know this is this is uh, again a place where people have to eke out food every day what they're going to eat and mm-hmm. it's not and it's and they're not there it's not a culinary <coughs> event no they eat. you know it's uh, they're they're eating what they what they can scrape up and their kitchens are 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 just are very they're not quaint they're nasty they they have they have kitchens that are falling apart right. that and not by not by choice not because they're being irresponsible or they don't want a, a nicer kitchen they they don't have anything they've they've yeah. been a lot of folks have been reduced i mean I, i've been to cuba to homes they have a, a nicer kitchen just like you might yeah. see and uh you know they may not have granite countertops but they got a nicer kitchen it's a little bit more functional but um but these are these were these kitchens were horrible right they were right. <laughs> well she went apart. to she went you know with the eye of a photographer you know ruins are beautiful Oh, I, I love mean, ruins. People have been photographing ruins forever. So you photograph the ruins with a little bit of, you know, of that, of color and pieces of, of stone missing. And, you know, you have texture. Yeah, but texture, I didn't know, I didn't know a piece of particle board with a, with a bowl no, on it for water was a ruin. Be- <laughs> I mean, it's beautiful. To, some of the things are beautiful to the eye. Yeah. The kitchens themselves, as you said, are kind of, you know, patched and pieced together yeah. from whatever it is they can get. What impressed me about it, except for one picture where there was some trash, a trash bag on the stairs. What impressed me about those photographs was how the effort people took or place in making those kitchens be decent. I don't know if they were told they were being photographed, but there was a Cuban kind of pride in how, you know how we are about keeping things clean and orderly yeah, yeah. and all that. And, and, and that was true. And, and don't get me wrong, when I said nasty, I wasn't being... No, I, no, I, no, what no, I no. meant was, if you have... Well, they're, they're horrible kitchens. They're, yeah, yeah. They're in the ruins. They, yeah. you know, she went to photographs, kitchens in the ruins of Havana, yeah. where there is a guy with a toilet right next to the kitchen without a door and with and the toilet of course doesn't have no a toilet, toilet seat, seat because right. that's that you know a rarity no in Cuba yeah. and he's eating cooking there the another one there is a chicken yeah. eating you know from the floor in the mm-hmm. middle of Havana mm-hmm. so obviously she saw beauty and misery and I I think it is not to the to, to to a photographer's side, there is beauty in there, yeah. But the political message of finding beauty in misery to me it's always been very disturbing about the way people have approached and photographed the lives of Cubans. Yes, um, because it's misery, and misery is misery. Mm-hmm. I mean, even if it's happening, if the blue, the peeling blue on on the wooden walls is gorgeous. Yeah, blue. 
you know, you're photographing misery. You're not photographing beauty in the end. One of the one of the people you interview in Letters to Eloisa, and we'll get yeah. to the film in a minute, but there is Aponte. Yeah, um, he did and, that wonderful film. And he did the film on El, uh, el, arte, el Nuevo Arte de las Ruinas. Ruinas. The New Art of Creating Ruins. And that was, a, that was fascinating to that me. That was magnificent. Yeah. That was magnificent because yeah. it's a short story he wrote. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, he's El Esamiano. Yeah. He's, well, he, uh, you know, he studied with Arrufat, but he ended up being El Esamiano. Oh. And he wrote this short story and like every short story at the end there is a surprise yeah and the surprise at the end is that the real ruins are the human ruins right right not so much the physical ruins you yeah. start with yeah. with the physical ruins and you end up with the writer mm -hmm. who's living in a you know not luxurious setting body in a you know livable setting and yet he too is a ruin yeah and you realize yes. that you yes. know it's the human the, the real ruin is the human so the humans is, is brilliant and it's we arrive brilliant. at Jose Le Samalima we do don't we yeah and um, I think I think uh, so a, f uh, a few years ago um, I d uh, you know in Miami you discover things late because uh, for whatever reason I'm not, not going to reasons but I discovered uh, Guillermo Cabrera Infante right and then I found out that he's actually my my he was he was my cousin's uncle, which I had no idea. Oh, he's been on wow. our we had here on the podcast and everything. So there was a little fan, and I asked my parents, "Hey, you knew this guy?" And Guillermo Cabrera Infante was was uh, an accomplished writer in Cuba. He was a journalist. He wrote movie, film reviews. Right, he for, loved for, film. Yeah, he was he mostly loved film. yeah. And um, he was also an avid cigar smoker. Right. And um, and I I found out about him, and then I I learned about Dulce Maria Loinas, who mm -hmm. was a, a famous Cuban poet, right. daughter of a hero of the of the of the the war against Spain, the Battle of Independence against Spain, and so and how she, um, like Guillermo Cabrera Infante, were. Uh, at some point, almost ostracized by the Cuban Revolution, they were they were silenced. Now, Dulce Maria was never pro-revolution, right. but Guillermo Cabrera was, and yep. so was Jose Le Samalima, who yep. is a, a, a subject in of a different film. way. In, in a, a different, different way. way. Yes. In a different way. Yeah. So I why, mean, why don't you tell us who Jose Le Samalima was? Okay. Well, let me tell you first about Cabrera Infante because I find him a fascinating mm. figure. I mean, he came from a communist. Um, he, he he was a communist. Yes. Uh, you know. Yeah. And and so, which Lesama Lima never was. Right. But um, he and Lesama both supported the revolution in a different way. Yeah. Cabrera Infante was supposed to be the new vanguard of the revolution. Lesama Lima was considered to be a has-been. Uh, he um, was the old Cuba. Yeah. The Cuba of the Republic. And he, his language was Baroque. Uh, his um, themes, his subjects were not, you know, on on the edge. So he actually was very um, shunned. And his first confrontation in Cuba, which I don't get into the film because I don't have time for it, was with the likes of Frankie and Cabrera Infante, mm. and oddly enough. Alberto um, Padilla. They mm. were people who thought that Lesama was just not relevant mm. to the project of the young, because these are all revolutionaries. Yeah. Of the young intellectuals 
you know that of 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 of, of the avant-garde of the 1960s and yeah. you know and and so that's where Cabaret Infante comes from he intersects with the Lesama story in, in in another way which is the real fight where Lesama gets caught after Paradiso has to do with Cabaret Infante hmm. Uh, the 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 first um, problem that Padilla has is with Tres Tigres. Yeah. Uh, because Cuba, you know, Cabrera Infante by then has left Cuba, and you know Padilla says this is a great book, and he writes in defense of Tres Tigres, and then somebody else writes, you know, some government official. Now, for those who, who don't know Tres Tristes Tigres, well, Trabalengua, <laughs> is, uh, is a book that Cabrera, Cabrera it's, Infante it's his main wrote, novel. Yeah. And, uh, and was later turned into a, he turned it into a screenplay right. for The Lost City which is a film that Andy Garcia made. That's correct, right. that's correct. But Tres Tristes Tigres was uh, published right after, you know, after Cabrera Infante, you know, stayed in London and, you know, left Cuba in 65. Mm -hmm. It was published after that. And so, um, you know, that created, that was sort of like the rub between the intellectuals and the government. In That was the first kind of instance where you began to see the split in in uh, in the in the revolutionary quote yeah. unquote intellectuals that were staying in Cuba, most intellectuals, yeah, I would you know I, I wouldn't say I think most is the appropriate word. I so I'm sure so somebody would question it, but a lot of Cuban intellectuals supported the revolution and stayed with it through the 1960s. But some of them did not. Well, Gaston Baquero, uh, there were some others that Boca left. Cabrera Infante was, was no, one. No, but he yeah. left in 65. Yeah. You know, they took jobs at embassies abroad. They, Frankie too, you know, uh, uh, Carlos Frankie, a lot of those people kind of, you know, yeah. t t you know, went ahead and they didn't break with the revolution until 65, 66, yeah. which is really when the first confrontations between mm. intellectuals and the revolution mm. come. And that really ended in 1971, with after the Padilla, the Padilla um, uh, affair. Now, was was the Sama Lima? Um, uh, would what, what was his? What was he thinking during this time? 65, 66. Uh, 65, 66. He is very much. Um, he's sitting on Paradiso. He's mm. finished Paradiso. Mm -hmm. He, his situation in Cuba is precarious. Um, he is allowed to write, he's allowed to publish, he is one of the vice presidents of UNIAC, of the Union of Writers. Right. His personal life is somewhat falling apart. His sister, who was the closest person to him, left Cuba in 1961, so did his other sister. He's left alone with his mother. Um, he's having a very hard time holding that situation together. Mm -hmm. Then the mother dies. And so everything falls apart for him. So he's personally going through a very, very difficult time. It is when he marries his secretary, Maria Luisa. And so he's sort of settled into this life. And you see the evidence of this is in the letters. Yeah. He settles into this life of constantly complaining. And he is unhappy 
in Cuba, he complains a lot about the scarcities that he has to go through mm-hmm. on a day-by-day basis. You know, it's that's very in the film. And you see that he is feeling very uncomfortable with what is happening in Cuba. And he's also seeing that the freedoms are, are being somewhat eroded, mm. somewhat eroded. So the letters, uh, now you mentioned the, the book is uh, Letters to Eloisa. Which letters, to, no, the, the, uh, letters to Eloisa is, uh, Letters to Eloisa essentially is just a body of correspondence. Right, a body of correspondence. So that she, he, so that it, he writes to his, letters that he writes to his sister. In Miami. The, in Miami, in yeah. Puerto Rico and Miami. There are no letters back from her to him. Right. Because, of course, those were destroyed. Exactly. But she painstakingly collected all of his letters and then in the end and there's an interesting political story there that I can mm. tell you later uh, handed to eventually handed to the Cuban Heritage Collect- Collection in Miami mm. and they are all digitized beautifully and they're beautifully preserved mm-hmm. and it's one of the great um, great documents mm. of the Cuban Revolution because you can really see a lot of what is happening in Cuba during those times right. uh, through the letters mm. but what really gets Lesama in trouble is um, Paradiso right. Paradiso uh, he's been writing it for 40 years now and everybody kind of knows about it, but, you know, he, he hasn't published it. His mother dies, and then he decides he's going to publish this 600-page novel. Gotcha, yeah. In the novel, there is uh, an incredibly strong homoerotic chapter that, mm-hmm. you know, it, it's written in very Baroque language. You can argue that, you know, that it everything is got, you know, sort of a layer in front of it and anything you want to argue about it. But in the end, it is really, you know, it's strong. The language is strong. The scenes are strong. And it happens to coincide with the map. Exactly. And it is a historic coincidence, although some people argue that it isn't, that he knew exactly what he was doing when he published this novel, and that it was an act of rebellion on his part. Interesting. Now, just for for the, for the audience, uh, the, uh, I looked it up earlier. Right. Umap, in English, uh, would the it would say it would read as military units to aid production, and That's these right. were these were concentration camps or camps. Right. Camps. Yeah. Well, uh, they uh, were concentration they, camps. Yeah, exactly. They they said yeah. they were just camps, though. And what's funny is I I read I found it on the wiki page, and the wiki page is very. Le, uh, a very left interpretation of really? this camp. Yeah, it's, it's really yeah, seriously. Well, then it has to be fixed and, because um, you know. Yes, yeah, so you can go back and fix it because you can go <laughs> fix this stuff. But it says basically it's trying to downplay what what they did. No, so no, tell no. tell tell everybody what was going on with Umap. Well, you know, I, uh, nobody knew. Everybody knew about the Umap, but nobody really knew 
mm-hmm. what was happening in those camps, and it wasn't only homosexuals. No, it wasn't. No, I mean there were a lot of a lot of se- of, of religious people of Seven Day Adventists and Jehovah Witnesses mm-hmm. were pulled into those camps, yes. and so there was religious people, there were homosexuals, and there were some lumpens and hippies. You know, there is a great film that Nestor Almendros and oh, Orlando it. Jimenez Leal, who's a very good friend yeah. of mine, That's a great film. made, which is called, you know, Conduct Impropia, Improper yeah, Conduct. Improper Conduct, yeah. Because anything that was not, you know, that, that fitted into that kind of, you know, loose category that the government deemed improper conduct landed you mm-hmm. in these in, 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 in this concentration camps. Yeah. Now, what happened in those camps has been, you know, was revealed later and through the testimony of the people who were at the camps. Whatever testimony and whatever happened from the side of the people who were running those camps and the government, none of that ever saw the light because, you know, that has never been a public, what, what, what exactly happened in those camps. Yeah. Uh, we have the testimony from the victims, but we do know that Raul Castro, when the camps were closed, some people were actually executed because of excesses that were committed in the camps. Really? Uh. And we also know now, and this is through my friend and brilliant research academic historian at Gainesville, Lilian Guerra, Mm -hmm. and there are people now who have, from the side of the people who were with the government in the camps who have produced photographs oh, of actual really? yeah oh, and so testimony cool. of torture mm. of real actual torture of behavioral therapy linked to that's torture. what it was behavioral therapy exactly. but linked yeah. to torture mm-hmm. you know to general torture and to all kinds of things that were being just tested mm. in in the soviet in the socialist camp and were also being tested in cuba and there is that evidence exists now hmm. of what happened inside those those camps, and so you know it was uh, it was a pretty a pretty dark um, moment in in Cuba, and a lot of intellectuals complained about it mm-hmm. to Fidel, and I think there was a lot of pressure to. To, to close those camps. I think Allen Ginsberg was one of the people who went to Cuba, I believe, in 1965 mm. and was very, very horrified. Yeah. And, you know, the gay, the, 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 the gay community has always had some sort of a, you know, some sort of understanding with Cuba and this created a huge rift yeah. with American gays, Allen, you know, and, and con- condemnation. So mm. there were a lot of voices raised and the camps were closed. Yeah. But it was, a very ugly, ugly episode yeah. in in Cuban history. Now Lesama didn't go right. to concentration camps. Lesama, but do you was think he he wrote, rele- wrote maybe wrote that chapter? Or released no, it no, no, that, no. He released the chapter. He he published the novel when it's published it because his mother died, right? And he could finally be himself. I think he was very conscious that his mother would have been very unhappy. I believe that his sister Eloisa, although it's not in the letters, was also very unhappy yeah. that he had published a novel with such homoerotic yeah. content. But it did get him in trouble in Cuba. They, you know, they suspended the book. They took it out of the bookstores. Yeah. There was a lot of pressure. 
I'm sorry, eventually on Castro. The story, I don't tell the story in detail, but the detail of the story is that Frankie went to see Fidel mm. and he said, look, you know, all your friends out there are, you know, are talking about how could you possibly not, you know, not censor this, this novel by yeah. this, by Lesama Lima, who's a very well-known writer and very respected everywhere. It's, it's, it's more trouble than it's worth. Right. And so they actually gave the go-ahead to put the novel back on the shelves. Mm -hmm. What is true is that he never repented mm. from writing this novel, never said anything in public mm -hmm. that he was wrong. The novel was never published again in Cuba until, I believe, 1993. And so for 30 years... The novel, you know, people were trading, trading copies of Paradiso, right? Um, you know, and sometimes trading them inside, you know, when things got a, uglier in the seventies, inside magazine covers and all kinds of things like that. And I have one of my witnesses was a young student who talks about how the Cuban government eliminated the literature of Les Amalima from the streets of Havana. And it, it was, a, you know, it, it was in, in these book exchanges. Yeah. If you went to exchange a book by Les Amalima, you can exchange it, they'll give you another book. And that book never went back into circulation. Right. So essentially they started any books that came in that dealt, that were about Les Amalima or by Les Amalima, were disappeared hmm. from 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 the streets. So were they trying to disappear him as well? Is oh, they disappeared him they completely. Disappeared him, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. They they ostracized him in a in a very um, very severe way to the hmm. point that you couldn't mention Le Samalima in a quote. Wow. You know, in any book in Cuba, you would not, the censor would strike your quote or your book wouldn't be published. Yeah. And he was never again taught at the university in Havana they were, or at any school. And it wasn't an, an anti-revolutionary book or anything. It, was, it no, wasn't that he wrote anything. No, but and he, he never wrote anything political. He was a poet. But he did one thing that was, you know, he, he did, he, everybody sort of knew that Lesama, Lesama, Lesama wasn't a revolutionary yeah. eventually. He I, got I in trouble for what he said, right? What he he spoke, got in yeah. trouble, f he really got, what, Paradiso, he, he immediately, uh, as of Paradiso, uh, after the publication of Paradiso, Lesama Lima is never trusted again. Yeah. Because Lesama Lima is a person who is capable of writing against the canon the perceived canon of the revolution. Right. You do not write, if you are a revolutionary, you do not write a homoerotic book in the middle of a homophobic, mm. um, of a homophobic um, period. Period. Yeah. In the, in the uh, you know, offensive. Mm. I mean, mm. you just don't do that. Right. So, so that in itself was that in itself is an act right. of subversion yeah. of independence. And and he's you know and he and and then if you do, then you repent or you say something or you cover your tracks or you say well I didn't really mean that but he never did. Yeah. And he himself survives to to tell that story and mm -hmm. to become a great 
writer in the world eventually, I, I think Paradiso is the Cuban novel mm. novel of the Latin American boom. Mm. I mean, yeah. Tres Tigres is that, but not in the same way right. that Lesama's Paradiso yeah. is. He, he was describing, uh, the, the book is based on the life of Jose Semi, that's Jose like the Semi. character. It's sort of an alter ego. Yeah, it's an alter you ego know, of his. Yeah, yeah. And, and, it, it's and semi-biographical. You get a glimpse of, of life in Cuba in, during that Republican period, right? That's right, well, yeah. and yeah. And, 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 yeah. Life in Havana, really. Life in, yeah. in Havana, and yeah. you get, a, it's a story of a family, but it's also the story of, you know, of coming of age. But the first few chapters are so lovely because they're, they are sort of a, a poetic look at the life of an aristocratic mm-hmm. Cuban family, yeah. um, which if you supplement that with reading what Eloisa wrote in a short, beautiful little book she wrote called Una Familia Manera, mm. you realize that they're really hilarious. Yeah. You know, they are, you That's know, the great. grandmother is a spendthrift. She actually mortgaged the house a few times and ultimately lost it. That's why they, the money runs out and they right. have to go back to Trocadero. They have to get that house at Trocadero. One of the, um, you know, the uncles were always fighting and screaming at each other. Yeah. Um, one of the sisters lost, um, the husband lost her fortune at the horses. Oh, so they were. Wow. A colorful yeah, yeah. family. They're not, yeah. you know, and he and he basically takes all that and he turns it into this mythical Cuban family, um, you know, of you know, Cuban aristocracy. And, yeah. and so I didn't know that Eloisa had written a book. Did, did it's you ever called Una Familia Manera. It's beautiful. Did you ever meet her? Yes. Yes? Yes, I did. Yes, I did. And I was going to interview her. Mm-hmm. I actually did an interview with Eloisa in, you know, off camera. And then she passed away before wow. I was able to wow. make this documentary. But um, Jimenez Leal... Orlando Jiménez Leal made a film called um, La Otra Cuba, and he has her. I saw that. He has a a, a segment with Eloisa, and I borrowed, with his permission, a clip. Okay. So basically what I do instead of I could have had a Luisa in the film mm-hmm. but what I do is I did this old Hollywood trick where you cr- I create this sort of fictional character in you know of Eloisa this idealized right. sister mm-hmm. you know who is beautiful she was beautiful and you know um, and, and, and you see her in her wedding pictures you see the first scene of the film is a dream sequence right where the mother um, has a dream the umbrella, the umbrella sequence mm-hmm. and when you actually see the photograph <coughs> and you know <coughs> this was fortunate because it's very hard to cast that, that mm-hmm. people and and when you see the photograph of Eloisa, the wedding pictures, she is incredibly, you know, she's she's very much like the Eloisa of the umbrella and the dream. Right, right. So that was a fortunate coincidence. Nice. Then you see her later in her more mature self. Yeah. You know, a beautiful woman, and so you and and this was sort of like she's Lesama's fantasy in a way mm-hmm. he, he mm-hmm. she is his um his muse his love yeah and and so at the very end 
I actually bring the real Eloisa. Okay. And after he, after he he dies, when he dies, she basically, you know, she is the vehicle by which I, I you know, he dies in the film. Wow. And and uh, and that's when you meet her. And it's I say, you know, I was mixing this mm-hmm. the day before yesterday, and the mixer. When he got to it, I said, there she is. Wow. I said, yeah, there she is. I guess the trick worked. Yeah, you know? <laughs> that's great. But uh, she's wonderful, wonderful. You know, there is a, you know, a, a, lot, of, a lot of emotion yeah. that, uh, that comes out of this. And, you know. Yeah, so so the, uh, that's the, a storyline. The family yeah. separation. The fact yeah. that that's the core of the story is uh, is is what happened. Uh, you know the, yeah. the the love that they shared. Even. The love that they shared. That is yeah. a very very strong. That's the yeah. you 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 always have that, and he's always saying Eloy, please write me Eloy, Eloy, and there is you know at, at first there is uh, you know a lot of static between them. Um, you know, which again, I I kind of don't have time to, to um, and but it lasts very little because she becomes as it happens with a lot of Cubans, in that remain in Cuba and had people outside of Cuba, she becomes you know the main supplier yeah. of you know she the the mainstay of his survival. Right. I have a shopping list in the film that you mm-hmm. know where he asks for everything imaginable. Where he traces his from foot. her and he traces his foot so and asked on for a shoe paper for and shoes. we all did that yeah yeah i mean we all i remember yeah. i remember my aunt you know my you know asking for us to send shoe traces and by the time the shoes came they didn't fit because yeah. they'd grown but um you know there is a lot of that and he is so heartbroken when he dies yeah. it's you know i i hope i convey the depth of of the heartbreak um i think you did because i, I you sent me a the the yeah. a, a, a cut of the film right thank you for sending it by the well, way well you know it's I, not right no i definitely now you made no me, color correction now you wanted me to go now <laughs> you're making me want to go see it when i go on to see it at the festival well which you, I definitely you will plan yeah, going. yeah yeah so um but i think um one of the things that one of my takeaways was um, you know, we, we when we get together as uh, for like uh, to do the podcast, right. like, the guys aren't here today, but we always get together. Sometimes we invite other guys and we sit around. And what we enjoy about it is just the camaraderie, the the ability to sit with friends and talk. La coralidad, yeah, is what you know. And yeah. there's so many photos of him where he's with friends. Oh yeah, and his friends were not present. No. In his final no. years. No, they nobody they could couldn't go see him. Well, they, they could, they but, could at a, but, but at a but at a high personal at a, risk. At a cost, yeah. Yeah. And mm-hmm. and um and you know living in that environment, that cultic environment, that 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 uh, cult of personality, that 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 dictatorship, totalitarian pressure that you can't even go see your friend, and your friend can't come and see you, yeah. Yeah. and that's your lifeblood. It seemed to me like that was his. Oh, that was el canto. I mean, el canto. That's what Reinaldo yeah. Reinaldo Gonzalez says that. He's still in Cuba. He was close friends with Lesama. And I couldn't translate it. I could not find the adequate translation for that. But he said, El canto de Lesama era la amistad. 
That means the, so his song was el friendship. Canto. But you know, it's, yeah, you can't translate, you can't canto, translate it. El canto de Lesama yeah. era la amistad. Wow. And his friends yeah. can come. I mean, he still says, you know, Jesus Barquet, for example, who's in the film, you know, younger people would come see him, would visit him, and, you know, and, and risk, uh, and risk being, uh, being in trouble. Yeah. He was being watched. Yep. I mean, you see these documents that appear at the Stasi, where they talk about work that has not been published. Hmm. Lesama's work. They quote work from Lesama that has not that it's in Lesama's house, and so obviously they they had somebody take you know papers out of Lesama's house. So Lesama he passes away and in, in obscurity because apparently there was one little uh, uh, snippet in an obituary in the Gramma. That's right. That's and then right. and then years later, you know, he's he's starting to be known again well, and the Cuban yeah. government turns his uh, the house San Trocadero into a museum. That's right. That's right. So then they start to honor him. Well, I'll tell you what, I struggled with that story a lot. Mm -hmm. And I always, to the very end, I felt, you know, as a filmmaker and as a PBS filmmaker and as someone who always believes that you've got to basically be fair. Yeah. You know, as somebody who also personally, I have an inclination for fairness. And as a storyteller and a documentarian, I find that to be a duty. And so I wanted to be fair to the Cuban government. Yeah. For rescuing Lesama, right? Mm -hmm. And I kept saying, Lesama's rescue, because that's how they refer to it, el rescate de Lesama. Why'd you have to rescue him? No, and, and <laughs> you know, it took me, I have to tell you, that I struggled with that Ponte bite. Yeah. Because Ponte dismisses it completely. Mm. And I struggled with that bite. And I said, ah, am I being fair? They did publish his book. They did. And then, uh, it took me years to get to the epiphany you so easily had. Rescue him from what? He did nothing wrong. Exactly, yeah. There was no... They rescued themselves. Yeah, exactly. Not Saving Lesama. face, yeah. yeah. They're rescuing themselves because what happens in the interim is that, no, Lesama disappears in Cuba. Mm -hmm. But Lesama doesn't disappear in the world. Right. Lesama's books are translated, Paradiso is translated to every conceivable language. Mm -hmm. What happens is that Lesama's fame is cut short. He does not become Cabrera Infante. He does not become Cortázar. He does not become Octavio Paz. He does not become Carlos Fuentes. He's not at that table. Yeah. At the time, mm -hmm. they deny him. And Behel is very good, Emilio Behel, who's one of my interviewees. He says that you, you know, you saw these people. He says countries promote their own writers. Yes. Such as such is going there, such yes. and such is going yes. there. And there was a moment in history, you know, I mean, of where the light of the world of literature, I mean, and popular literature mm -hmm. as well, shown on Latin America yeah. and on Latin American writers. And Lesama couldn't be, was not seen within that because he was not allowed right. to leave Cuba. Yeah. He received 
invitation upon invitation upon invitation to lecture, to collect prizes, to everything. And he was not allowed to leave Cuba. Mm -hmm. Denied, denied, denied. Yeah. He and Eloisa made plans to meet in Paris. Denied. Um, mm. And, you know, so sad. and he basically died alone waiting for his name to be recognized to receive some of that recognition yeah, yeah. from the world in the, you know i mean it's a lifetime he died at 66 and he a great writer I mean the only maldoror prize of poetry ever handed mm -hmm. to a Cuban poet was handed to Mal to to to, to Lesam, and that's a story. That's the documentary the, yeah. says that it's brought, brought in a brown paper, a brown bag. paper bag to yeah. his house. That's crazy. And and so he doesn't and and he doesn't he's denied that and he's denied seeing his sister ever again. I mean, and then he's denied a proper. F a proper send off in the grandma. Yeah. And you know, I I I pff, they destroyed him. Yeah. And then yeah, fine, you decide that it's now you're going to do a mea culpa. No. You don't rescue Lesama. Mm -hmm. He doesn't need rescue. Yeah. They rescue him and the tr the way they try to rescue him is as a revolutionary writer. Oh. So they basically start publishing not going to name names it's not fair. There's they're you know, one of them is close friend Cynthia Vitier, mm -hmm. and another biographer. They begin to unearth any letter, any poem, anything he said in favor of the Cuban Revolution or wrote, and so they rescue him through that. Right. He is a revolutionary writer, mm. and Eloisa is sitting on these letters, and so Eloisa says, "Hey, wait a minute." What are you talking about? Mm -hmm. My brother began to really distance himself from the revolution very early on. Yeah. And not only that, look how he suffered and what mm -hmm. happened to him. So then she gives these letters to Carlos Franchi. And mm -hmm. Carlos Franchi is the first one to publish these letters. I remember wow. he gave me a little book. Carlos Franchi did these little, little books. Some of them had writings from Martí, mm -hmm. there were other things, and one of those books was the letters to Eloisa, and I remember that's how I first came across the letters, wow. and I just looked at them, and I said, oh my God, this is like Anne Frank, Yeah, I mean, this is somebody who's watching the inevitable happen, mm -hmm. and he's locked up in a room, and he can't really do anything about it, and he writes, and he writes, and he writes, and he ends up dying without ever wow. getting out of that house. I mean, we're talking about him, people still talk about him, people still, you know, call themselves Les Amianos, mm -hmm. and who knows, I think, what, how, how much more influence he might have had if he hadn't been silenced yeah. as he was. Right. But he was, he was silenced. Mm. He was silenced. But there, there are two things in in the documentary that I think help understand why he was such a thorn on the side of the government, mm -hmm. and I, and I think it's explainable by the fact that he is the best known Cuban yeah. living in Cuba, yeah, abroad. I mean, Carpentier is well known, but Carpentier doesn't live in Cuba, mm -hmm. and he's not. A revolutionary writer, right? And he can't be trusted. 
Plus, he really, um, he really does something that places him. He does do an act of rebellion that is sort of counter-revolutionary, and it is when he hands Padilla the prize for that's Fuera right. del Juego. Yeah, I saw that in the documentary. And he refuses to. To sign the disclaimer. To sign the, uh, yeah, <laughs> to sign the document that yeah. says, you know, that says that they, everybody regrets and rejects yeah. uh, the right the poet and the poetry. And he refuses to sign. Right. And he sticks by his prize and he sticks by Padilla. And then, of course, Padilla throws him under the bus mm-hmm. and, you know, and says two things. Lesama, he says two things about Lesama. He is ungrateful to the revolution, and in private at his house, they tell jokes. Yeah. That are, you know, that make fun of... This is Padilla who said this. Padilla says this, but I mean, Lesama is ostracized, and not allowed to write, and not allowed to do anything, and not allowed to publish again, and, you know, disappears, and is pretty much locked up. In, you know, in solitary confinement, ultimately, because you know, by denying him the visitation of his friends, wow. etc., yeah. because of Padilla's testimony. No, because, partially, yeah. partially because yeah. because Padilla's testimony, the fact that you know, what adds up. I'll tell you what adds up. In, if you watch the documentary, the addition is this: Paradiso, mm-hmm. the fact that he never, you know, backed down. And you know, and he remained the proud author of this novel mm-hmm. that has a very heavy homoerotic chapter when the revolution is homophobic. Mm-hmm. The defense of Fuera del Juego, mm-hmm. the price, and then the decision never to retract. Mm-hmm. Padillas being forced, I'm sure, to yeah, throw him under dress. the bus. Right. Yeah. And then, of course, um, uh, the the homosexual, the anti-homosexual. Uh, decree of uh, the Consejo Nacional de Cultura mm-hmm. in 1971, where mm-hmm. homosexuals are banned from teaching young people, from publishing, oh, from wow. having mm-hmm. anything to do with society. So all of these things kind of come together to wow. make him into an absolute mm-hmm. pariah. Mm-hmm. I mean, oh, and he, and and we're talking about ten years. Yeah, we're not talking about months. We're not talking about. We're talking about between 1966 and 1976. Yeah, you know the the, the ten years of his life when the Samalima reaches the fruition of a lifetime of literary work. Yeah, they silence him. Mm. And he, and he passes away in 1976. In 1976. In 1976. Alone and, uh, I mean, it's, it's a very, it's, it's obviously, uh, it's a tragic story, but it's also one that gives a, uh, it gives us uh, a glimpse into that time period, which is oh, so yeah. dark. Yeah. I mean,
this has been like for me personally a wealth of information I, I thank you this conversation has been very enriching for me um, where so where can people see the film the documentary premieres the world premiere of the documentary is on March 8th mm -hmm. at the Tower Theater at 1 p.m. okay it's uh, the Miami Film Festival I um, you know I hope to see, I mean, my, my ambition is to, you know, to, to force more than one screening because I, I think, um, you know, we, we have to support our stories. Yes, yes. One of the reasons that I think the Cuban government has been so successful in promoting its own narrative is because of the money and the effort mm -hmm. and the support that it puts into the telling of that narrative. And I think we owe it to ourselves, yeah. to our community, to our storytellers, to our writers, to our poets, to you know our documentarians, to our filmmakers, mm -hmm. to all of that, to our musicians, yes. to support um, to support the narrative of Cuba that tells the truth about Cuba. Mm -hmm. But if, you know, the Jews, look at the Jews, you know, you still hear stories about the Holocaust. Mm -hmm. And that story has been told how many times? Mm -hmm. But they still tell the story. And they still support anybody that tells that story. Yes. And that story, uh, the story is told over and over again and is supported over and over again. Not by people from the outside. They don't wait until... I don't know. The Germans come and you know put up money. You know they have they have an hour foundation. Yeah, no, no, yeah. no. They put in the money, and they support their story. Therefore, their narrative remains. And any time you know, and and so they put their money where their mouth is. And I think that we as a culture, if we want our to our story told, um, we need to put our money where her mouth where, where our mouth is. <laughs>